loves the NHS. I love the church. I love the church because I believe it's the hope for transformation for the nations. I love the church most of all because it's the place where I can tell Jesus, I love you. I'm here to worship you. You mean everything to me. Jesus, he's our moral compass. He's our relational compass. He's our compass for salvation. But does he set the emotional agenda of our churches? That's what I want to know. I'm not here to bash the church that I love. I'm here to build up the bride of Christ. And I'm wondering, will you build him? Will you build her with me, with my brothers and sisters, with my bishops and vicars? Because Jesus loves the people of the world. That's why he came to die. We have to show him that we love them too. Because he's asked us, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. In that world of insecurity and fluctuation, church can be the place of unmasked simplicity where people destabilized by emotional distress can feel the solidity of that rock of ages under their feet. But all too often in our churches, which are marred by their own emotional turbulence, Cultural dictates and spiritualized veneers keep those walking wounded from finding the secure harbor of an omnipotent God. Perhaps mind and soul is a catalyst of people passionate about injustice and stigmatic attitudes towards emotional categories like depression or anxiety. Perhaps we're tired out by seeing sufferers of genuine psychologically driven illness marginalized into categories of spiritual warfare or willful disobedience. Maybe we just want to see a better day for you good people who work in the NHS. But maybe, just maybe, it's that we're driven by something really idealistic something bigger than mechanistic achievements, something that speaks more of the kingdom of God than the waiting room at a GP referral center. Maybe that we can see for sufferers and for practitioners alike, the Lamb of God is the best hope for the transformation of our world. That Jesus came to preach the kingdom of God was at hand and that it was for Jew and for Gentile for Greek, for slave and for free and for depressed and for psychotic and for melancholic together. And just like Zacchaeus in that crowd, we want to plant and we want to grow a great big tree to help people that have been excluded by the crowd climb up and see that saviour walking towards them. Come down, Zacchaeus. I'm coming to your house to eat your food and to spend time with your kids today. And salvation came to that house. This week, I received an email. It was a gift from the Lord for today. And I have permission to read it to you. Dear Will, I wonder if I could ask you a question about something which has been bothering me regarding what some Christians have said to me. 
I've had a lot of Christians come up to me and say things like, God doesn't want us to be in anxiety. He created us to free for freedom. Or the Bible says, don't be anxious over anything. Or even better, if we are not living in joy, it's because we aren't resting in the Father's arms and accepting his fatherhood over us. I've really struggled with some of these comments, which have either been preached at me or passed my way during my illness. The thing is, I've known the loving arms of God as my father for many years, and yet I've had this illness, and it's led me to feelings of guilt sometimes. I know that isn't right either. But I just feel uncomfortable with some of the things that people are saying, and I don't believe it's as simple as they're preaching. What's the correct response as a Christian to these comments I've received? I'd be glad for your point of view or for your advice. Regards. Anon, worship leader, central London. You'd know the church. With 20% of our population suffering from depression in their lifetime, at least of the fifth of the members of our churches experience similar sentiments to the individual above who, who asked me to tell you that he was a worship leader in a central London church that you know about. Just so when you look at the worship leaders worshipping here on Sunday, you're not going, wow, aren't they amazing? They haven't got any problems. Look at them radiating the joy of the Lord. As followers of Jesus Christ, our commitment to bring healing and wholeness has particular significance. It must surely be our shared intention today that neither our ministries or our professions exacerbate or fuel the distress of those who are already suffering with mental and emotional health issues. Juan Luis Vivre, born in Valencia in 1492, he died in Bruges at the age of 48. He was respected by Emmaus and Henry VIII and even Sir Thomas More. And his words are perhaps a helpful reminder to all of us in the musings that we make on emotional and mental health, clinical or theological, distressed people are involved. He says, There's nothing in the world more excellent than man, nor in man than his mind. Particular attention should be given to the welfare of the mind, and it should be considered a highest service if we either restore the minds of others to sanity or keep them sane and rational. One ought to feel great compassion for so great a disaster to the health of the human mind. And it is of utmost importance that the treatment be such that insanity be not nourished or increased. A wise saying from 1490-something. Sadly, and unintentionally false mechanistic categorization on both sides, religious and clinical, has subsequently separated what had previously been a more holistic fusion of mind and soul. We have, to our great detriment, found that reference to Christ has been extracted from most of our NHS settings. I'm sure... That nurse Caroline Petrie's experience of suspension and vilification following her offering to pray for a patient will not be the last one that we see this year. Equally, reference to psychoanalysts in churches have become the reserve of the unsound. Who can comprehend 
Leanne Payne's derision of Carl Gustav Jung in her book, The Healing Presence, which is a wonderful book. When did pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical products produced by capitalist companies set out on exploiting the sick become sound and hypotheses around the psyche become demonic? Why does the church continually accept the advancement in medicine for the body but drag its heels over medicines for the mind? Perhaps it's this. Perhaps it's secretly that we would all like to say that we're fine or sane or sound. Yet, not so far behind our own facade is the realisation that the edge is a lot closer than we would like. It would, of course, be okay to stay on our side of the fence if it was all clean and clear and simple. In reality, emotional and mental health issues permeate all of our lives, and their causes are as diverse as the proliferations of the common cold. The church has as much to say about the pain of mental health as the world does, and its leaders as much as their congregations. In an evangelical alliance audit, 53% of pastors had considered leaving ministry due to stress, and 38% felt constantly overwhelmed by pastoral care demands. 22% of Anglican clergy time off each year is as a consequence of depressive illness. Yet even that significant reality is cloaked in individual shame and denial rather than in corporate compassion and understanding. At Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, a goat, little goat, was sent out into the desert to find its own way amongst the wolves and the eagles. And it was sent out carrying the sin and the shame of the people. See Leviticus 16 if you want to read about it. The scapegoat, it made people feel separate from their failings and separate from their guilt. And it was, of course, an impotent symbol because only Jesus Christ, crucified on the cross at Calvary, the perfect, righteous sacrifice, spotless and sinless, could be the power to break sin and shame and guilt and bondage. But sadly, the scapegoat syndrome still exists in our churches today and in our NHS and in our own lives. People with emotional and mental health issues become observed, they become a spectacle, and often after much prayer are categorized as faithless or hopeless or even something worse. Is it any wonder our leaders keep their emotional pain a secret when they see the plight of some of their flock? Yet emotionally healthy church has to start with us 
with leaders and with leadership teams and with pastoral teams and with prayer ministry teams. It has to be modelled and it has to be discussed and it has to be preached upon and it has to be ministered to. And we have to be ministered to. Paul Scazzaro writes, The overall health of any church or ministry depends primarily on the emotional and spiritual health of its leadership. In fact, the key to successful spiritual leadership has much more to do with a leader's internal life than with the leader's expertise, gifts, or experiences. I started out as a super pastor. Here I am with my cape. Not that I'm super at being a pastor, but I certainly wanted to give the impression that I had it all under control. I was entering the Anglican church, where we've got a uniform even. I thought I could do a big W in a triangle at the front, maybe red and blue, embossed. My bishop didn't think that was such a good idea. My working environment expected us all to have a robust interior, tempered with a little vulnerability to demonstrate a godly humility, because no one likes an arrogant priest. But for me, the cape came off after the London bombings of 2007, during which I did nothing really heroic at all. Not even really involved. I just did nothing heroic. I served tea and coffee. That's what Anglican vicars do well. I provided sustenance for the laborers and opportunities to pray and to download I still will never forget um, accidentally being on the right side or the wrong side of the cordon, however you want to see it. And, and um, in my little uh, sub-chapel room, we had all of the um, police and the ambulance service and the SO13 guys. And uh, we were all very shaken up and I had my 14-inch uh, color television on the altar. And we were watching what was happening because no one's mobile phones were working. And we stood there together, this merry band, me thinking I was quite tall in the middle of lots of firemen who are really quite tall. And we watched uh, as the bus bomb went off in Russell Square together. And we shared the terror. And for a moment, I had a glimmer of what I'd always hoped to be, the super pastor. Here I am with real people doing God's work. But my subsequent journey into anxiety and depression was later dealt with in credulity by my wider brethren. I'll never forget one call I received from a former mentor as if the smoke signals had been puffing out across the clergy network ready to send the next goat out into the desert. I hear you're having a breakdown! The voice boomed down the phone to my dismay. Where had all the pastoral love gone? Where were the soft angles and the gentle warm-up? Or was that just reserved for healthy and robust and victorious ministers of the gospel. They certainly weren't for vicars like me. I'd let the team down. I'd let the cat out of the bag. We were human after all. We could all get depressed, every one of us. I felt like H-Boss in the Lloyd's takeover. I had to get a credit crunch gag into this talk. They thought I was a good option. 
ready to bring new profits to their already buoyant balance sheet. Instead, they found that I was full of debt and that they soon too would find themselves in talks for a public takeover. You're just like us after all. When you're set apart, there's surely nothing more humiliating than to be found to be included. But isn't that the issue? We were. We are. As ministers of the gospel, we were never set apart from suffering. We were never set apart from distress. Not in my Bible, not in Romans 5.3, not in 1 Thessalonians 1.5. We are set apart for the gospel, but we're not set apart from our humanity. We're not set apart from our frailty. We're not not excluded from that box marked depression. Until we, as leaders and practitioners and pastors, identify with the frailty of our own minds and emotions, how will we ever be able to walk with the wounded opposed to viewing them aside from our common humanity? Church is a place for healing because it's the place of encounter with the person of Jesus Christ the people of Christ, and the presence of Jesus Christ. And yet if we allow a culture that prohibits the naked engagement of the emotional health of our own hearts without judgment, then surely healing is prohibited. Jesus asked us to come to him just as we are. Is that not good enough for our churches? Is that not good enough for us? Christ's people. Ever since the first healings in the early church, we've asked, why are some healed and some are not? But as we all know, the persistence of cancer does not indicate the failure of the minister or the unworthiness of the victim. In the same way, we have to be willing to stand with the mentally and emotionally unwell long term and without prejudice. It has several times in history been pertinent for the church to re-examine itself, not not according to its traditions, but according to the teachings of Jesus Christ. The Reformation has its roots in such a reassessment, and I wonder today if we are also not calling for a reformation within our attitudes towards mental and emotional health. If our churches are to truly reflect the nature of Jesus, they must make acceptable the emotional spectrum that Jesus Christ himself showed. He never intended that our churches be emotionally muted, that only expressions of joy and peace would be acceptable in his presence. He shed tears in Luke 19.4. He was filled with joy in Luke 10.21. He grieved in Luke 14.34. He was angry in Mark 3.5. Sadness came over him in Matthew 26.37. He felt sorrow in Luke 7.13. 
he showed astonishment and wonder in Mark 6.6 6 and Luke 7.9. He felt emotional distress in Mark 3.5 and Luke 12.50. I'm sorry. Jesus expresses perfect humanity and hence his emotional spectrum is also perfect. He educates us in emotional expression as he grieves over Lazarus and as he prays in distress in Gethsemane before he would die for our sake. As we seek a better day for mental and emotional health in our churches, let us not use our own ideas our own models, and our own policies. Let's use his. Brothers and sisters, the road is bumpy, and the burden can be stigma and shame. But Christ has called us to this. He has called us to love God, to love our churches, to love his world, and to love each other. As we collaborate to bring acceptance, education, compassion and healing for the emotional needs of our churches, let's do it in Christ's name, by his model and for his glory. Thank you for listening.